Welcome to Book of Mormon, Digging Deeper. I'm Mark Swint, your host. I'm so happy to have you with us today. noticed how the Old Testament ends? How Malachi decides to sign off as the last of the prophets? Being that the Old Testament prophets all prophesied of and looked forward to the advent, the the coming of their Messiah, the coming of the Lord, and hoping for the promised atonement he would make, you would think that Malachi would have ended with something like, oh, I don't know, and now we leave you looking forward to that great and glorious day when the Savior, the great sacrificial Lamb of God, comes down to atone for the sins of all mankind. Until then, we bid you farewell. Now, you see, that would have been a great send-off for the Old Testament and a proper introduction to the New Testament. However, that is not how it ends, and no biblical scholar in the world outside of LDS scholars can tell you why. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. It will still be Book of Mormon related for sure, but we're going to talk about the events leading up to the Book of Mormon, and we're going to talk about Moroni's visit to Joseph Smith in particular. And we're going to tie that in with the Bible. I really hope you enjoy it. most curious thing occurred when Moroni visited Joseph Smith on the evening of September 21, 1823. He appeared in Joseph Smith's bedroom, and he delivered a message that there was a book of golden plates deposited in a hill nearby. They were buried in a stone box, and he showed Joseph Smith in a vision where that box was. He also told him about the Urim and Thummim, a device that would be used to help translate the record. Now, it was a remarkable visit by a heavenly messenger with a remarkable message, and it was only the second visit Joseph had had from a heavenly visitor. And you would think that the story would end there. Hey, Joseph, I buried a book of gold plates in a hill over there, and Heavenly Father wants me to show you where they are. You go get them, and you translate them. Here's the Urim and Thummim. Have at it. But that's not what happened. As he was relating the story, Joseph Smith says this, After telling me these things, he commenced quoting the prophecies of the Old Testament. What a curious thing that he would do that. Joseph continues, He first quoted part of the third chapter of Malachi, and he quoted also the fourth or last chapter of the same prophecies, though with a little variation from the way it reads in our Bibles. Now, at this point, I'd like to take just a second and mention that when the Savior appeared to the Lamanites and Nephites in the the Americas after his resurrection, besides quoting some Isaiah to them, he also quoted Malachi. So the book of Malachi, as short as it is, must hold more importance than we commonly give it credit for. It's a very short book. It's only four chapters, and those only contain just a few verses. 
it contains some ominous sounding uh, verses that appear to be about the end of the world. And then that's it. That's the way the Old Testament ends. If that is a correct assessment, in other words, if the Bible was put together correctly, then how curious that Malachi ends it that way. The fourth chapter of Malachi, the last one, starts out with kind of an ominous warning. It says, quote, For behold, the day come that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. The last two verses of Malachi 4, those would be verses 5 and 6, it's a very short chapter, say this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. If indeed the Old Testament is the prophecies about the Savior, his coming and his mission, then what an odd way to end the Old Testament. You may think, as I said earlier, that the Old Testament would leave some kind of an introduction into the New Testament, or at least into the anticipation of an atonement or resurrection, the salvation of the people. But it doesn't. It says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day. What could he possibly have meant? Okay, now we accept that as the ending of the Old Testament. That's okay. So then if we go to the Pearl of Great Price and read Joseph Smith's account of this visit with Moroni, we find this. Joseph Smith claims that Moroni quoted the third chapter of Malachi, and then he quoted the fourth chapter, though with a little variation from the way it reads in our Bibles. Now, that's interesting. Joseph Smith isn't just including Malachi in his account of Moroni coming to visit us. He is giving an edited version of the words that are found readily in every Bible in almost every house in the Christian world. Here's what he says. For behold, the day shall come that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, for they that come shall burn them, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And then again, he quotes the fifth verse thus. Behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And then Moroni quoted the last verse differently as well. He says, And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole world would be utterly wasted at his coming. Now that's quite a significant change from the biblical Malai. But regardless, put that aside for a minute. The very fact that Joseph Smith claims that Moroni was quoting Malachi to him seems to be completely outside of the assignment of revealing to Joseph Smith the existence of the Book of Mormon. And the verses thus quoted don't seem to have any connection with that as well. And in fact, Joseph Smith had no idea what Moroni was talking about. Remember, Joseph Smith was at this time just a young man of 17 years old, and Elijah was going to come and give him the priesthood? He had no idea what that meant, none at all. And if the things that ensued did not happen, the whole earth would be utterly wasted. 
Now, that's a, a, an amazing thing. It's interesting to add to the event of an angel coming into your room and showing you where some gold plates are buried. Nevertheless, Joseph Smith maintained that is exactly what happened. I submit to you that it took Joseph many years to understand fully what Moroni's visit that night was all about, and I want to show you why. First of all, for the record, it took Joseph Smith four years to get the golden plates. We know that he translated the first 116 pages right off, which Martin Harris borrowed to show his wife, who promptly stole them, and tragically they were lost to history. Those 116 pages were what we call the Book of Lehi, and in First Nephi we read how Nephi included a record his father had made in the plates he fashioned with his own hands. We don't know, or at least I don't know, what they said, but I'm sure it was very interesting stuff. So, after that, Joseph Smith lost the gift of translation for a while, and then finally, the translation of the Book of Mormon began in earnest in 1829, and in fact, the entire work was completed really in just over 60 days. A little bit of work had been done prior, but 60 days was about it. The book was published the last week of March of 1830, and the next week, on April 6th, that Sunday, the church was organized in New York. The fact that Joseph Smith did not understand what Moroni, or rather, did not understand the implication of what Moroni was telling him about Malachi, is borne out by the fact that the subject of priesthood seems to have had no bearing on his mind whatsoever. And in fact, we know that Joseph did not raise the question of priesthood at all until he and Oliver Cowdery were well into translating Third Nephi and the account of the Savior's visit to the Americas, where he gave the priesthood authority to his disciples so that they could baptize. Joseph and Oliver went to the Lord and they prayed about this. They were commanded to go down to the Susquehanna River, where John the Baptist revealed himself to them and conferred upon them the Aaronic priesthood. He then instructed them to baptize each other. Kind of an interesting way to do it, but in the very first event, you've got to have, you know, somebody to make it happen, and that's how it happened. It is interesting that as Joseph Smith recounted that event, he never said, well, I was waiting for Elijah. Where's Elijah? Not once. He just recorded the fact that John the Baptist came and ordained them to the Aaronic priesthood and then had them baptize themselves. He then says, a few months later, they were visited by the apostles, Peter, James, and John, who conferred upon them the Melchizedek priesthood. That priesthood gave Joseph Smith the power and the right to organize the church and to run it, to govern it, if you will. Again, Joseph never once questioned or pondered the fact that it was not Elijah, as Moroni had said, who came to him, but rather Peter, James, and John. So you see, this visit by Moroni was momentous in so many ways, yet the portion about restoring the priesthood by the hand of Elijah was something that kind of got lost in the enormity of the overall message. Well, we continue on. We know that Joseph at the time knew nothing about temples. You have to remember, uh, let me back up and say this. You have to consider the fact that when the church was organized, and when the Book of Mormon was freshly published in the spring of 1830, that there was nothing quote-unquote Mormon 
or LDS about the church. There was no particular LDS doctrine, nothing that would differentiate it from uh, any of the other churches. There was no doctrine of the priesthood. There was no priesthood quorum. There were no apostles. There was no doctrine about the preexistence of man. There was no doctrine about the three degrees of glory or the celestial kingdom. There was no knowledge of exaltation and the ultimate destiny of men and women. No knowledge of families and couples being sealed together. There was no understanding of temples and of temple ordinances. These are things that came on later. The revelation on the three degrees of glory didn't happen until 1836, fully six years later. Joseph had his hands full just trying to get things started. What you basically had was a whole bunch of Protestants with this Book of Mormon and everybody trying to figure out what it meant, what it stood for. And they read it and they would study it and they would ask questions. And Joseph would take those questions to the Lord and he would receive revelations from time to time. And those revelations became the collective work known as the Doctrine and Covenants. There's more on the Doctrine and Covenants and the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, but we'll save that for another podcast. The bottom line is, the church grew line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. The fullness of the gospel was not put together at all at once. Joseph Smith had not received one all-encompassing revelation that showed him the entire plan. He got it a piece at a time. So I would imagine, and I'm speaking only for myself, but I would imagine that for a few years or for many years, this enigma that was left him by Moroni quoting all these biblical scriptures was interesting, but really had very little meaning to him. Further evidence of this was given, according to Richard L. Bushman in his wonderful work, Joseph Smith, Rustone Rolling, when he recounts that in late 1834, Joseph Smith told the assembled apostles that, quote, he had thought the church was on permanent foundation a year earlier when he had organized the high council in Missouri. He was ready to die, he said, thinking his work complete. Quote, but now God requires more at my hands. Then we go forward a few years to the completion of the Kirtland Temple, and we find more evidence of this. The Kirtland Temple was completed in 1836, and prior to its completion, or I guess I should say to its dedication, Joseph Smith had told the people to prepare themselves spiritually for great spiritual blessings at the time of its dedication. There would be angels, there would be heavenly choirs, there would be visitations from resurrected beings, there would be prophesying and gifts of tongues among the members. It was going to be a truly Pentecostal event. And indeed it was. The course of the dedication took several days, and there were a number of spiritual experiences that were both experienced and recorded. So then you come to the next Sunday after the last of the dedicatory endowments had been completed, it's a wrapping up of the dedicatory process, and in their minds, they have pretty much experienced everything that was going to happen. According to Bushman, he says this, quote, Joyous as the endowment was, Joseph's attention went back to Zion immediately. But then, to their surprise, the spiritual experiences were not over. About a thousand people attended the morning service and returned in the afternoon for the sacrament. At the conclusion, Joseph and Calvary went into one of the pulpits and had the veil dropped. 
cutting them off from view of the congregation. In seclusion, they experienced one of Joseph's most spectacular visions. They saw the Lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit before him, and under his feet was a paved work of pure gold in color like amber. His eyes were as a flame of fire. The hair of his head was like pure snow. His countenance shone above the brightness of the sun, and his voice was as the sound of the rushing of great waters. Even the voice of Jehovah saying, I am the first and the last. I am he who was slain. I am your advocate with the Father. Behold, your sins are forgiven you. And then Bushman continues his account. He says this, Warren Cowdery, Oliver's brother, reported additional visitors behind the veil that day. Moses appeared, and then Elias, and then Elijah. The narrative continues. Each personage presented keys. Moses to the gathering of Israel, Elias for the gospel of Abraham, and Elijah for turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers in fulfillment of a prophecy in Malachi. Now, did you catch that? Bushman says, to their surprise, the spiritual experiences were not over. Now, this is the first time Elijah has shown up, and in no time prior to this did Joseph Smith ever say, gee whiz, I wonder where Elijah is. When is Elijah going to show up? He was not expecting anything more when the Kirtland Temple was dedicated and completed. And yet, the most profound and important set of visitations was just about to come. Elijah gave them, Joseph and Oliver, the sealing power to go with their priesthood. He gave them the ordinances and the sealing power of the temple so that families and couples could be sealed together for time and for all eternity. At last, Moroni's enigmatic message had meaning and Malachi's prophecy was fulfilled. It had taken 13 years, but there it was. Now, we move ahead to 1844. We move ahead to when the Nauvoo Temple is being built. It is still under construction, but the attic, or top floor, was finished, as was the basement. There was a baptistry in the basement to conduct baptisms for the dead, and up in the very top of the temple, they were conducting sealings of marriages for couples and families. Parley P. Pratt, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, made a record of a meeting that Joseph Smith had in March of 1844 with the Brethren. Quoting Elder Pratt, This great and good man was led before his death to call the Twelve together from time to time and to instruct them in all things pertaining to the kingdom, ordinances, and government of God. He observed that he was laying the foundation, but it would remain for the Twelve to complete the work. Said he, I know not why, but for some reason I am constrained to hasten my preparations and to confer upon the twelve all of the ordinances, keys, covenants, endowments, and sealing ordinances of the priesthood, and so set before them a pattern in all things pertaining to the sanctuary and the endowment therein. Having done this, he then rejoiced exceedingly, for he said, The Lord is about to lay the burden on your shoulders and let me rest for a while. And if they kill me, continued he, the kingdom of God will roll on. And here's the interesting part. He says, As I have now finished the work which was laid upon me by committing to you all of the things for the building of the kingdom according to the heavenly vision and the pattern shown me from heaven. 
He had certainly been tasked with restoring the church, but when he says in 1844, I have now completed the work that has been set before me, you realize that organizing the church was simply one step in the task that was laid before Joseph Smith. Now let's go back and look at this in the light of Elijah and Malachi. We realize that when Moroni was talking to Joseph Smith in 1823, he was giving him an assignment. When he quotes Malachi and quotes it a little differently, he says, And I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet. Moroni is saying to Joseph Smith, You are going to be the conduit through whom the Lord reveals and restores the priesthood with all of its ordinances that will put temples back on the earth, get ceilings back upon the earth, and seal families together and couples together for time and all eternity. If this were not so, now referring back to Malachi 3, you would be left without root nor branch, because you see, the root and the branch are what we all recognize when we do our genealogy and we look at our family trees. That's why we call it a family tree. Our roots are our ancestors. The branches are our descendants. We are the trunk, and to be left without root or branch means to be disconnected. I'm not connected to the people that created me, and I'm not connected to the people I created. There's no binding together. Joseph Smith's work and calling was to get priesthood and temples back on the earth again, plain and simple. That was the task, not restoring the church. The church needed to be restored, no doubt, but it needed to be established so that there could be a vehicle by which temples could be created and brought back to the earth. Now we realize, and we ponder, and marvel at the fact that the Old Testament ends with Malachi, not leading us to the New Testament, not looking forward to the Savior's earthly mission, not looking forward to his resurrection and atonement, which are pivotal events in all of eternity. Rather, Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, was speaking directly to Joseph Smith and looking forward to the wrapping up, the final days before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's what it is. It's a worldwide event that will be great for many and terrible for others. It will just consume everything. The final days, the wrapping up, it, that is, in the end, the important thing. All of us are here on earth to gain our exaltation, to gain our salvation, to be sealed together as families, and to go on our eternal progression. So, the final events are the things we're really looking forward to. All of the steps leading up to that, including the atonement and the resurrection, which are absolutely crucial, are steps toward this end. Without that, it wouldn't happen. But as Malachi says, Without the restoration of the priesthood and the building of these temples in the latter days, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. That's amazing doctrine. Amazing stuff, if you will. And I want you to ponder the fact that all of this was laid down in the second visit that Joseph Smith had from any heavenly messenger at all. Keep in mind that in 1820, when Heavenly Father and the Savior visited him, they basically just answered his original question, which was, which church should I join? And they just oversimplified. They said, don't join any of them. They've all gone wicked. You shouldn't join any of them. Hang tough. We'll get back to you. 
That's basically how that went. So after a few years, Joseph Smith is curious. He says, what am I supposed to be doing? What's going on? What do you want me to do? So the Lord answers him in 1823 and sends him a Roni. He shows him the gold plates. He shows him the Urim, the, the Urim and Thummim. And then he quotes Malachi to him. This was when Joseph received his mission call. He didn't understand it at the time, but he would figure it out soon enough. For a 17-year-old kid to have figured all of these things out before a doctrine unfolded over many later years is truly remarkable. To think that Joseph Smith could have laid into his original stories about Malachi doctrine and thoughts and theories about theology that wouldn't be manifest for another 15 or 20 years it is just that boggles the mind. Remember that seven years after that event, Joseph Smith still did not understand much about the priesthood. He knew nothing about temples. It was 13 years after Moroni's visit that a temple was built. It was 13 years after Moroni's visit that Elijah came and visited with Joseph Smith and gave him the seeming power. At that time, the prophecy of Malachi was fulfilled, and then it was up to Joseph Smith to build a grander temple that could handle all of these things, all of these baptisms and endowments and ceilings. The construction of the Nauvoo Temple was set in motion, and finally in 1844, fully 21 years after a teenage Joseph Smith told the world that an angel had visited him and showed him some gold plates, fully 21 years later, Joseph Smith could at last say, and now I have finished the work which was laid before me. I sit in awe as I ponder how amazing this story is and how perfectly all of these elements line up to testify to the world that Joseph Smith truly was a prophet of God. I hope you feel the same way. I encourage you to ponder these things and then meditate upon them and pray about them that your testimony might be strengthened. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Until next time, be well, be happy. <laughs>